Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Kurita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Again, it's another great opportunity to open the Bible and to learn how to live a life in Christ. And today we are going to discuss about indestructible hope. I'd like to welcome our panel today and I'll say hello to Joe. It's good to have you with us. Hello, Nick. It's great to be here today. And Jerry, it's good to have you with us too. Hi, Nick. Nice to be with you. Lija, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be again involved in the Bible study. Brenton, thank you for being part of this. Thank you, Nick. We're looking forward to sharing this uh, very important topic. Marek, it's good to have you with us. Lovely. I, I must say that today is one of these beautiful days where the sun is just streaming in through the window. So uh, I'm just glad to be experiencing that and focusing on such a wonderful topic. And it's uh, it's great, Marek, that uh, we have you with us also as a facilitator. You put together this Bible study, and I would like to pass it um, over to you. Good, good. Thank you. Well, the uh, the title of our discussion today is Indestructible Hope. And of course, as we look around, as we uh, tune in on the uh, news bulletins and so forth, we live in a time of fear. And there is nothing as critical, as important as being able to place our hope in something that is certain, something that is positive, something that will give us the ability and the power to face life, life's challenges. And so uh, as we look at this topic, I would like to invite Jerry, if you would kindly lead us in prayer, and then we will uh, start with some of the points we want to highlight throughout our discussion. Our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we may be guided by your Holy Spirit as we study this most important subject. We um, Understand, Lord, that uh, we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. We are searching for enlightenment. And we just pray humbly, Lord, that you will guide us in this discussion and uh, and lead us in Jesus' name. Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, panel. I uh, look forward to your comments, your contribution. I suppose there's no better way of, of starting this discussion than to focus on the word itself, the word hope. And uh, and as we do, I'm sure many of us will think of different synonyms, different words that help us understand the meaning of hope. What words, synonyms come to your mind when we speak of hope? Panel, suggest a few. Well, expectation is one. Uh, right. Uh, expectation, yes. Optimism. Mm-hmm. Yes, optimism. Yes, there's something very positive about the uh, about the concept of hope, right? Confidence. Confidence. Yes. Faith. Faith. Absolutely. Trust. Yes, trust. Good. Assurance. That there seem to be so many different synonyms. I was kind of fascinated that the. Uh, uh, Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary actually lists 106 different synonyms and antonyms of the word hope. So it's kind of good to be on the same page and know exactly what it is that we're referring we we are referring to when we speak of hope. But in looking at these synonyms, I want to highlight the fact that 
Hope is something very, very different, very special. We can look at it as a character trait. It's certainly a spiritual virtue that the Bible highlights quite frequently, but it is a state of mind. It's a state which takes us above and beyond anything that we might be experiencing at a given time. And we know, we know that when we look at the phenomena of hope, that it is so critical to our state of well-being, to our outlook on life, that in some instances where people have given up, where people have felt hopeless, where the future seemed so bleak and there was nothing to provide them with any degree of assurance, that oftentimes that had a very significant impact on their life. Uh, if any of you have read the work of Viktor Frankl, he recounts numerous experiences of prisoners of war who, by giving up, succumbed to disease, and it was within a matter of days that death would prevail. So, so here we can see that hope makes an incredible difference. I have dealt and been in contact with numerous patients, and I'm sure, Jerry, you would have as well, who succumbed to depression, to suicidal ideation, because life seemed to lack any hope, any positive sort of options. And so uh, hope plays a very, very critical role there. But when we look at the, at the concept of hope, is hope purely a positive emotion, as many would have us believe today, particularly those who subscribe to positive psychology concepts? What do you think, panel? I mean, first of all, uh, Marek, I would like to add also to what you said there. Looking from this perspective, uh, I heard this many times being said, that uh, hope dies last. As long as people have hope, there is something still uh, in place you can look at. But unfortunately, looking from um, only this perspective on this world, if everything crumbles down and then um, you lose hope, what's yeah. left? That's probably where we are going to look maybe even a bit diff from a different point of view, from a biblical point of view, uh, to see how the Bible talks about uh, this aspect. Mm -hmm. So th there's no doubt that, that it is a positive emotion because it, it does provide us this kind of more optimistic outlook on life. But it, in actual fact, is more of a state of mind. So much so that, you know, we may have our ups and downs But overall, the outlook remains optimistic, positive, uh, directed to the future. And as a result of that, it, it, there is that component of resilience. You might sort of experience a setback here and there, but you bounce back because you have something positive, something powerful to look forward to. Uh, Joe, you would like to comment? I think I absolutely, I agree with everything you've said. And More than an emotion, it's an attitude that allows us to forge ahead no matter what the circumstances are. And I think that's pretty much what you were getting at, Marek. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I uh, came across this uh, interesting little excerpt. Uh, uh, Psychology Today had a, uh, uh, a little feature article of why hope matters. And I want to share this with you just very briefly. Uh, just a little summary statement. Research indicates 
that hope can help us manage stress and anxiety and cope with adversity. It contributes to our well-being and happiness and motivates positive action. Hopeful people believe they can influence their goals, that their efforts can have a positive impact. So this statement really emphasizes the fact that hope matters. It does make a difference. It makes a significant difference in our lives, particularly when we face adversity. But then if we take a more spiritual perspective, it is enriched because it brings in the supernatural, the divine into the equation. And so it provides us with a very special dimension uh, when we consider uh, the, uh, the concept, the phenomena of hope. And of course, undoubtedly, in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, hope is listed as one of the three all-important spiritual uh, virtues uh, that characterize Christian life. We have hope, and hope joins faith and love, as listed in 1 Corinthians 13. 13. How would you differentiate, panel, between a secular perspective on hope as opposed to a spiritual perspective on hope? Uh, can you highlight again some of the distinctive sort of features of, of, of a spiritual perspective? Merrick, um, the Bible talks about the blessed hope. So for a Christian, that puts it into a particular context. And that context is the, the coming of Jesus uh, and, uh, and to take us home, to put it simply. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, for all Christians really should be the, the, uh, the driving factor uh, behind hope that you, regardless, as we've said, of what is happening in mm-hmm. the world and in your own life, uh, there is that certainty of the, the, the coming of the Lord, that, that blessed hope. Yes. And, uh, yes. and that is so much more uh, vital than yes. a, a worldly hope. I mean, uh, from a worldly perspective, our hopes are dashed often. Absolutely. Uh, but from a biblical perspective, our hope is rock solid. It's, it's right. a certainty. Right. Nick, you had a comment. While Jerry was saying that, uh, mentioning the blessed hope, it implies here that um, looking from a biblical perspective, uh, there is another element, if you like, to combine this, the Holy Spirit of God to be part of this. We mentioned the word trust. And um, in the Bible, actually, many passages of the Bible where we can read hope, actually, it can be replaced. And some other translation actually reads trust, which um, to have that trust in God, you need to have that relationship with God, which Mm -hmm. has to be through the Holy Spirit. Right. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Brendan, you you have a comment. Oh, just two things, um, Marek. I think number one, secular humanism or secular hope is based on evolving. It's based on a principle that we are getting better and better and that in time the issues of the world will sort themselves out as we develop the powers that are within us. I think some of the evidences of what we see around us today must make us question that statement. The second point is from a spiritual perspective, we believe we were got created in God's image. We believe we fell as a result of sin. We believe the hope that we now have that Jerry referred to is a hope that what was lost will be restored. 
Right. And I think that's a very important point. Right. Good. Biblical perspective on hope is very much focused on the belief that good things will happen when we place our faith in a higher power. And there's no doubt as to what that higher power is when we look at it from a biblical perspective. That higher power is God, Yahweh, the all-powerful God who will not let us down in the way that human beings can let us down, that we can let ourselves down. So this is one of the important distinctions. But there's also another important distinction, and that is that from the biblical perspective, hope is very much forward-looking. Brendan, would you like to comment on that a little bit more? Yes, just briefly. Um, there was a text here, Marek, that we can share. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, a complementary text to that was found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 39, where it says, and all these, talking about the people in the faith chapter, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. I'm asking myself the question as I look at this, hope is forward-looking. There has to be a strength in the person's hope that there is going to be a positive outcome, even if you cannot see the positive outcome. Now, the people referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, all of them died believing in a Messiah. They believed um, that um, this world would be remade but they never saw it. Now, we're living in the same scenario. We're living in a rotten world, which we believe is going to be remade, but we haven't seen it as yet. But it's the hope that projects us through that, that what God said uh, will happen when we come to the term, the appointed time, we will see God in action. We will see uh, the fruit of the hope that we have had. Um, A story that comes to mind is the story of... um, Ernest Shackleton's expedition to the Antarctic, the Transantarctic Expedition or the Imperial Transact, where he had to go for help because the ship got crushed and most of his men were left back on Elephant Island. Uh, Frank Bush was, or Frank Wild rather, was the um, leader of the group that was back there. Every day he had them pack their bags And one of the men said later, we would have given up a long time ago, but every day he'd say, guys, get your things together. The boss will be back. (laughs) (laughs) I I always remember that story. I've read it over and over and over again. But you know what? It's applying to the Christian life. One day soon, our Lord will be back. And that's, that's where the hope lies. It lies in the promise that he has made, not necessarily even how strongly we believe it. Yes. Each day is a new beginning. And whether I am a a poor victim of the war in Ukraine or somewhere else in Africa, uh, you know, desiring a little bit of food and water, all of us are united in one hope, and that hope has a future element to it. We focus on what God has promised us. And to that extent, I'm wondering, Joe, what is the role of, of promises in establishing an indestructible hope? We've already mentioned the definition as a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. But there's an archaic, the dictionary offers an archaic definition, and it's a feeling of trust. Now, biblical hope is, Marek, one that is based on the promises of God 
or rather who God is. And this is where the certainty comes in. God is well able to deliver on what he promises. We know that the Bible is filled with promises. In fact, there are promise boxes where someone has made little scrolls with, you know, promises that people pick out and read a promise each day. And I would like to read a very short psalm, if I may. Some believe that uh, David wrote this when he was fleeing from Saul. And it says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a winged child with its mother, like a winged child am I content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Mm-hmm. It, it's a good psalm to to pray even um, when we want to quiet ourselves in God's presence and to put our complete trust and faith in him. It is to humble ourselves before God just like a child would when it's cuddling with its mother, feeling safe and secure in its mother's love and care. Now, Charles Spurgeon says that, yes, the psalm speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man and I would add a woman in Christ. And so we have this um, experience. We can claim these promises based on his ability to keep the promises, that he's trustworthy, that I can trust and I can anchor my hope in God because he is so willing and eager to keep his promises. And I'm, I'm afraid this picture of God is one that should short circuit any despair, fear, anxiety, and heal any hopelessness that I may feel. Thank you, Joe. And, of course, when we come across words like those found in Isaiah chapter 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep uh, over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Words of this nature must not only provide us a sound basis for a trust and a hope relationship uh, in our God, but must be also a source of strength to us. Jerry, how are these promises and, and the biblical perspectives on hope, how are they a source of strength uh, to the Christian? Yeah, hope is a source of power and strength. Indeed, there's a uh, beautiful verse in Isaiah that says, but those who hope or those who wait, in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So this this is a a beautiful promise for now, not just a a future promise, but for now. Those who hope in the Lord, every day your strength is renewed. Mm. And it's a beautiful experience to, uh, when you start the day and um, invite God to, Go before you to, if you stretch out your hand and say, Lord, take my hand, yeah. renew my strength, uh, yes. give me courage uh, to meet whatever comes my way. The, the promise is there. It, it's poetic, of course, here, but it's, it's just a lovely way of saying, you know, that, uh, that God will give you whatever you need right. to, to right. meet the challenges you face today. Mm-hmm. And therefore hope is a source of strength and resilience. There was a quote here where it says, where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. And we've alluded to that already, that if you give up today, then there is no hope for the future. Yeah, We can have confidence that, that uh, God will provide for yes. us. I think it's worth saying the fact that hope is not based on human efforts or desires. 
So it's something gifted from God. So we have to recognize this. And there is a text in Romans 15, 13, which it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Right. So yeah. my part in this is that to remain connected with God through prayer, yes. Yes. and I will be filled with hope in time of need. Thank you. Thank you. That's an important emphasis. Thank you for mentioning prayer, because that is that critical link between us and God. Brendan. I think the, one of the important points that we've just touched on, Marek, is that you, the, um, the daily giving yourself to God in surrender is the important issue. God gives you the strength for the day, not for the week, the month or the year. He didn't even support Israel on that basis. He supported Israel on a daily basis. He provided manna for them every single day other than the Sabbath. So the hope that we're, while the hope we're looking at is long term, what we need is God supplies us with sufficient strength for today not for tomorrow, next month, or next year. Mm-hmm. We are given strength for the day because each day will have its own challenges, yes. its own trials, and we can't predict in advance what they will be. So to me, I see that as fairly important. Commit yes. yourself to God mm-hmm. for the day, and he will take care of the issues yes. for you for today. Yes, thank you, Brendan. That is so, so important. That relationship with God needs to be a daily relationship it needs to be there from moment to moment. Otherwise, when things do go wrong, we don't know whether we're standing there on our own or whether God is with us. And so maintaining that constant contact, that constant communication is, is so, so critical. I'm mindful of, uh, of the words of Solomon in the book uh, of Proverbs, chapter 13 and verse 12, where Solomon states, hope that is lost makes the heart sick. When we look around us and we see the the prevalence of depression, of suicide, when we when we see the extensive use of antidepressants and so forth, then we realize that this is a, a necessary crutch that so many people require. Uh, it does highlight the the need for us to have a solid basis for our hope, and so our study focuses on the concept of indestructible hope. Panel, what do you see that indestructible hope as being? What what makes it unique and what makes it indestructible? Uh, Ligia, you have a comment. Hope, this virtue hope, becomes indestructible in our lives, becomes actually a state of mind anchored in Jesus through our relationship with him, becomes a reality of promises through my experiences with Jesus. Right. The word of God, the holy word of God is my pillar of promises that anchors me in this indestructible hope. Right. Brenton and then Joe. I think, Marek, it's what's important here is the term indestructible hope is based on God's promises, as Lydia said. The reason it's based on God's promises is because God has a 100% track record. Right. Everything that he has said has happened. You know, we talk about, <laughs> there's a, a joke that goes around, how do you know when a politician's lying? Answer, when he opens his mouth. Now, um What we've got with God is someone who said, this is what's going to happen and uh, I will make it happen and we can trust him totally because 
not only based on biblical experience, but based on our own experience. And I think that's important too. We have found God's promises to be 100% reliable. So the indestructible hope comes from the promises of God and what was fulfilled in the word and in our own lives. The combination of the two gives us indestructible hope. Our own hope is very often very destructible and is very circumstantial. There is only, when I, I considered this, I thought there is only one indestructible hope. And in Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, it says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. Yes. All who forsake you will be put to shame. There is only one indestructible hope, and it is how closely we align ourselves with this hope. The indestructible hope is that that strengthens and supports our own hope because we're subject to the vagaries of circumstance and mood, emotion, also even the weather. Some people are affected by the weather. So the point is that there is only one indestructible hope, and I would say that's a capital H. That is the only entity, the only being that is indestructible, that is everlasting, and and that is where our hope needs to be placed. Nick, you have a comment. We mentioned a bit earlier uh, things going on in the world, for example, the war in Ukraine or the possible other conflicts, you know, to start. And you may hear this kind of thinking, we only hope that uh, this and that will change their mind. You know, sometimes the humanly hope, it's based on some other party can do or not. But when we talk about the indestructible hope and we have the trust in God who never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think this is the big fundamental belief in regard to hope. And that's what I like to link it with trust. Good. Because if you trust in God, who says that I will never let you down, then doesn't matter when Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that thing will come in place. Mm -hmm. It may Mm -hmm. not even be in this life. (laughs) Put it this way. You may not even see that uh, coming through in your life. But you have that assurance that God will take you through. Good. Thank you. And I, I want us to now move forward with the discussion and look at some interesting examples uh, in the Bible, which help us grasp a little bit more what God is about when it comes to adversity, when it comes to injustice, when it comes to war. Where is God when all of these things are happening around us? And can we trust him? And so we have this wonderful story of Habakkuk, a great book to read. And uh, and in the story of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, questions God on multiple occasions. In some ways, becomes frustrated with God and says, well, God, where are you? Can't you see all the corruption? Can't you see all the injustice that exists all around us? If you are God, why are the wicked not punished for their sins. Now, it would take some courage for any of us to really stand up to God and challenge God in the way that Habakkuk challenges God here. We look at Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, and it says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why do you tolerate the treacherousness? Why are you silent? while the wicked swallow up those that are more righteous than themselves. 
Is this not the cry of the world today uh, here uh, as, as reflected in the words of, of Habakkuk? Can we identify with that sentiment? Do people identify with that sentiment? I think uh, people have a tendency, and perhaps we do too, to put God in a box and say, I've got him all figured out now. Mm-hmm. This is what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we look at uh, a prophet who, a spokesman for, for God, he, he can't quite figure out how can this be? My understanding of God is that he is just and that he doesn't tolerate wickedness. Um, how can he appear to tolerate wickedness here? Where is he? Why doesn't he intervene? And people ask the same kind of questions when you talk to them about uh, the Bible. You know, they say, well, if, if God is all powerful and almighty and if he's a just God, why does he allow this to happen? Right. And, and of course, that question has caused more people to walk away from religion because they started to question, where is God? Why is he so silent? Chapter 1 and verse 13 that uh, was read, there's some interesting points. And this is what makes this book quite unique, Marek, is the fact that he's saying to God, why aren't you doing anything about the problems? And then God answers him and says that I'm going to raise up Babylon. And to his thinking, Babylon is actually worse than Judah. So he's asking the question to God, why are you using a group of people or a nation more wicked than Judah to discipline Judah? Mm. He, he, he just can't uh, get his head around this particular yes. concept. Right. And, and it seems that for a time, God is silent. But in actual fact, the book indicates that God's response is waiting for an appointed time. Uh, Brenton, you, you've studied the book of, of Habakkuk extensively. What does that term refer to when we, when we refer to an appointed time or a, a time of the end? I believe it's using a term that indicates that God has a, shall we say, a divine timetable. And the appointed time is the time that God has determined is the appropriate time to take action. You find the same concept, Marek, in Daniel 8, verse 19, Daniel 11, verse 29, and you also find it in the book of Galatians that Paul wrote where he says, at the appointed time or in the fullness of time. I think the King James Version says, uh, God sent his son, born of a woman. So God has a timetable. What God is saying to have a cook here is, wait, my friend, wait. It is going to happen. The appointed time is my time. It's not the time that you think it should be done in. It's the right. time that I know is the best. Now, yes. when you're all wise and all knowing, you know the appropriate time. Right. Often in life, we talk about things that happen uh, we say the timing for that event was perfect, but often our events are not perfect. The timing is not perfect. Right. Yes, oftentimes we would like God to act in our time, right away. according to our <laughs> desires, according to our schedules, yeah. but that is not always the case. So, Liga, you have a comment. Yes, I think it's worth mentioning the fact that I observed here that the prophet's own example demonstrates how one can persevere by living with a vision. Based on his past experiences, he knows of God's absolute faithfulness. And the message here is that trust in God's presence and have confidence in his judgment and his unchanging character keeps your soul stayed upon the source of all light and power. And day by day, 
through faith in God, your hope and courage may be renewed. Okay, good. Now, you mentioned the word faith. I, I want to hone in on that, uh, on that a little bit more, because obviously, as we wait for God to take action, and we know that he will at his appointed time, what happens in the interim? Uh, Joe, what's the role of faith? Well, it says that the just shall live by faith. If we actually look at further down, we talked about the um, the vision is yet for an appointed time, and at the end it will speak, it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. And then it says, but the just shall live by his faith. We know that this phrase, the just shall live by faith, spearheaded the Reformation. And we know that um, it's Paul uses this this phrase three times in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. So clearly we don't always see the things that we want to see. We know in Habakkuk's time, you know, he was lamenting the sin that was Israel was, you know, the things that were happening around him and how they had spiritually declined. And then God speaks to him and says, well, this will happen. And it seemed that the remedy was far worse than the disease, you know, and so that required a lot of faith. He obviously had in his mind the sort of intervention that he expected God to do. Mm-hmm. But no, God surprised him. And of course, we know with Jeremiah, we've, you know, that's probably something that may be discussed later on. But here, God says, the just shall live by faith. And therefore, we can't always hang everything on what we see in, in our lifetime experience of others. We have to hang everything on the word of God. Right. God is faithful. Thank you. God has that bigger perspective that we don't. And what he is pleading with us to do is to live by faith, trust him, and to base a hope on that. Brenton, you had a comment. The just shall live by faith. Another interpretation based on the Hebrew is this. Just, another word for just is the righteous shall live by faith. Another word for faith is constancy. I observe that here it says, but the righteous will live by his faith. So it's up to me about, about my choice to remain connected with God in this righteousness. Good, good. In the meantime, God doesn't ignore the events that are happening in this world, even though he seems to be silent. Jerry, what, what gives us confidence that God will ultimately bring all of us to account and people to account for the things that are happening, the injustices. I think so often today when we see, we watch TV and see the injustice all around us, when, when, thing, when uh, people go to court and, uh, and they, they leave court feeling robbed of their justice, they're, they're very frustrated because they think, where is the justice? Uh, the, the judiciary is corrupt. Often, you, you, you know, people are left really unsatisfied with the outcome. And you can sort of understand that because um, I often, when I'm watching this, I often think to myself, yeah, where's the justice in that? Uh, and it would seem almost as though you can get away with whatever. You know, people say you can get away with murder. Well, you, if you could almost, if you have a, if you have enough money, then you can get the best. Good yes. Uh, but, yes. But but not so uh, according to the Bible. There's a there's a number of references in the Bible that make it very very clear. One of them is found in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter five, verse ten, where it says, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good." Or bad. There is an ultimate a day of reckoning where mm. a just God will decide 
you know, or have the final word, and it will be a righteous judgment. And I, and I think that's very comforting. And you see that thread all through the Bible in, in yes. the Old Testament as well, where so Ecclesiastes finishes, if I could just mention that quickly. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And this is after a person speaks about all that he's done, all he's achieved, all the, all the wisdom and the folly that he's experienced. It comes to the conclusion. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. Right. right. God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good mm-hmm. or evil. Thank you. So, and, and of course, the book of Habakkuk has a, has a wonderful conclusion where God reveals himself to the prophet. And as a result, the prophet comes forward with these words of praise. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, my source of hope. Wonderful conclusion. But what the story also highlights to me is that we often have a very limited view of God and we don't fully and properly understand the character of God. And even the prophet here had some misguided perceptions of of God and what God ought to be doing and, and, and isn't doing and so forth. So it's kind of critical for us to understand that sometimes it's our limitations our limited perspective on God that is the problem and that we need to look beyond that. And, of course, the story of Job again highlights this point in a wonderful way. It's an all-time biblical classic on the on the subject of suffering. And here we see Job, a man who has been afflicted in, in, in the most, most tragic way where Satan takes away his family, takes away his wealth, takes away his social status, and to top it all off, His friends come along and say, Job, all of this is happening to you because you have not confessed your sin and God is seeking to purify you. (laughs) This is a tragic story. Of course, without Job being aware of the controversy in the background, but there is much that we can learn from this story. So looking at the story of Job here and his ill-advised friends coming here supposedly to encourage him and support him, actually have the very opposite effect. Their so-called human words of, of, of counsel and wisdom here tend to be quite discouraging. And, uh, and ultimately, when God reacts to that, he states very clearly that he finds the counsel of Job's friends quite abhorrent. It's so easy for us to sometimes come out with different ideas and conclusions and reactions when we see people suffering, when we see people afflicted by uh, by illness and pain, that we have to note from the experience of Job certain things so as to not repeat these same errors. What, what do you think are some of the errors that we see commonly that kind of misrepresent God and perhaps even misrepresent the whole tragedy of, of pain and suffering. Would anyone like to comment? Yes, Leah. Sometimes it's better for us to be silent and listen to the person than right. giving a wrong advice. Yes. Because we don't know exactly the circumstances and uh, being a shoulder to cry is more help than anything else. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And, that, and you know, the, the best thing that his friends did for the first seven days was to be there with him in silence. But once they start offering their opinions and advice, that's where things get a little bit out of hand. And of course, one of the, one of the errors that we see here so prominent is that they begin to attribute 
this suffering as something that God has sent upon Job, and we know that not to be the case, or that God is using this as a teaching tool to correct Job, to refine his character. You must have done something wrong to deserve this punishment, they say. Pray to God that he will forgive you and and heal you. You know, so often we may be tempted to say, well, maybe it's the will of God. But, you know, if you're sitting next to the bedside of a patient afflicted by cancer or some other disease, the worst thing that you could ever say to that person is that it's the will of God. Amen. Or that God is trying to refine your life. Or you should accept your lot in life. You know, this just goes completely against the grain of what we understand God to be like. The loving, merciful, compassionate God. And so I I think we have to be extremely careful here so as not to add to the burden of the suffering person. And I think that there is an important lesson that we can learn from the ministry of Christ here. Jesus never gave the poor or suffering person a lecture about accepting their lot in life or taking their current state as a medicine that God has given them. Jesus was always exceptionally sensitive to the needs of suffering people, and he set about to heal them and to restore them, never to punish them. And I think this is an important lesson that we can sort of draw out here from the story of Job. Now, Jerry, I noticed you have a comment, and Brendan and and then Nick. The the concept of an angry God who punishes you because you've done something wrong is a very pagan concept, isn't it? Yes. And it doesn't doesn't gel with the the biblical uh, idea that God is love. God is love. And uh, he's in, in in the process of restoring us, healing us, restoring our dignity, lifting us up. None of that is in alignment with an angry God. Absolutely. Quite the opposite. Brenton. In regard to this uh, healing matter, Marek, as a minister, I've conducted a number of um, anointing services. And one of the things I'm always very, very careful to ensure when we're doing an anointing service is to point the one who has requested anointing to the fact that God can heal them. He can choose to heal them physically. He can choose to heal them spiritually or he can choose to heal both. Mm. And I believe the important facet there is we pray for their physical healing, trusting that God will do what's best. Mm. But above all, we pray for their spiritual healing because the Greek word in James is sozo, which means to save. And it can mean several, uh, a number of different things. And the most important thing, I believe, when you're dealing with a person who's suffering is Are you right with Jesus so that regardless of the outcome of this, whether God chooses to heal you physically or whether he chooses to heal you spiritually, when he returns in the clouds of heaven, you will have a home with him. That's the most important. And, And I like the emphasis that you've placed on spiritual healing. You know, the burden of guilt can sometimes even outweigh the burden of the physical illness. And so we would like to see physical healing, but sometimes it's the emotional, the mental, the spiritual healing that is more important than the physical healing. Nick, you had a comment. Yeah, this book, it's wonderful and uh, will require much more time to deal with um, all the aspects in the book of Job. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. But we need to recognize that God, by allowing Satan to work on Job, put it this way, 
and then inflict on Job pain and suffering when God allowed that. Whatever we take it, it's a teaching lesson that the effect of sin in this life, it's pain and suffering. That's the effect of sin. Now, whoever it's inflicting on us, that's a different story. But by God allowing that, many people departed from God because of that reason. How can a powerful God allow the enemy, Satan, to do this tragedy in this world? And this is the hinge here, because we don't know the end, because God was not only presenting his character before this world, but in the in front of the universe, okay. all, all those beings which never experience pain and suffering. But even though by seeing our Lord Jesus Christ going through the pain and suffering, they were crying, I believe. They were yes. suffering a different pain, not yes. a pain inflicted by sin. And I really need to stress this point out that uh, the result of sin causes pain and suffering because people today, even if you live in a very good life, let's say in the Western world, we think, oh, we are more blessed than other people. Are we? Are we? Uh, Let me put this way. You know, when Satan was testing, causing that pain on Job, he lost his children. He lost his goods. He lost everything except his wife because Satan was making sure that he will use that avenue against Job. And sometimes people today, which they may think that they are blessed or they do a good life, that may be even an avenue through which the enemy can work deception in our life. All right, Brendan. There's one verse, um, Marek, I know you need to move on. That's actually, there are key verses in the book of Job. Job 42.5 is one, but the one I'm looking at is Job 40 verse 8. Would you indeed annul my judgments? This is God talking. Would you condemn me that you may be justified? That mm-hmm. is a very, very deep text. It fits in with what Nick said. It fits in what it other is. people have it said. Is. God is really saying, now that I've given you a history lesson, now that I've given you a botanical lesson, now that I've given yeah. you a geographical lesson, are yeah. you saying that your problems yeah. yes. are more important than my yeah. judgments? Absolutely. And, you know, the shift here is so significant from the point where Job says, I wish I could present my case personally to God and seek answers from him to God revealing himself and Job standing back and even regretting that he had questioned God, covering his mouth over, you know, resisting saying any further words. You know, it again highlights the same point that we saw in Habakkuk. And that is, did Job have a full understanding of God's character? We can see that he didn't, just like Habakkuk didn't. But look at the transformation that takes place after God reveals himself to Job, after God reveals himself to Habakkuk. These men just stand back in absolute awe, and the only thing they can do is to praise God for his wonderful ways and the way that he leads and guides and so forth. And so it brings us to this critical question, you know, what's our vision of God? How do we see God? 
it seems that the person who is totally indifferent to God is the one who is the first off the mark to blame God for injustice, for all the evil, for all the suffering. And yet the person who trusts God, who places his hope in God, is the one who can be afflicted by pain, by suffering, by illness, by cancer and what have you, And yet they have an unshakable trust in God. They have an indestructible hope in their God. But that can only stem from a very close relationship with God, from a knowledge of God, which is something that Job's friends lacked. God says, who are these men who are speaking without knowledge? And and so the closer our relationship, our walk with God is, the less likely we are to attribute evil and place blame on God. Our mouth is closed. Our words are meaningless. Yeah, Marika, what I was going to add on that one is because you may heard the word blind faith or hope. Actually, Job was reasoning with God. So was Habakkuk, was reasoning, was asking some question which they didn't understand. And God was willing to show them what's his plan. And Job said that very famous saying, even though you slay me, I will still trust you. Right. And of course, the story of Job so beautifully illustrates the fact that the reason Job trusted God and placed his hope in God was not based on material prosperity. It was not based on state of health. Even though he was afflicted with sores and pain and misjudged by his friends, his trust, his hope in God was indestructible. And that is the greatest lesson that God wanted to reveal to the whole universe through the story of Job. In coming to some of our concluding statements here, I think the very critical thing that we need to focus on here is to develop and seek to have a proper understanding of the character of God. Is he a God of vengeance, as so many of the other pagan gods were? Is he a God who is seeking uh, blood offerings and, and, and animal offerings and human offerings and so forth? You know, he tells us he doesn't want any of these things. But what he wants from us is a proper understanding and acceptance of the fact that he, when he reveals himself to Moses, to Elijah, to Daniel, to Paul and others, he is a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness, a God of love. This is the way we see God when we look more closely at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I I, I want to focus on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ because through his healing ministry, Jesus teaches us So much about God. He provides for us such a wonderful revelation of God that there is no other revelation that is as rich, as deep as that that we have through the life of Jesus Christ. And so when people came to Jesus for healing, for assistance, God never judged them, never condemned them. The greatest sinners felt comfortable in his presence. The lepers approached him. Those who were crippled and afflicted approached him. And, of course, we have this beautiful instance of uh, Jesus seeing a crippled woman in the synagogue one Sabbath morning, and he calls her forward, and in compassion, he places his hands on her, and she is healed. And, of course, his critics are all around him saying, you shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath, but Christ performed many miracles of healing on the Sabbath. And what I find really fascinating here is Christ's response to his critics. 
He says, you hypocrites, you care more for the oxen and the donkey in its stall than this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. Now, here, who is the cause of the pain and the suffering of her disabled state? Jesus makes it clear that it's the result of sin and ultimately that it is Satan who has caused yes. this problem. It's not something that God wills and, uh, and destines for us as, as, as human beings. And, of course, we have numerous other examples. We have an example of, of a person with a birth defect that we read about in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, a man who has been blind since birth. And, of course, his titles say, uh, Lord, who is responsible? Who sinned? Was it the man or his parents? And what's, what's Christ's response to that? Neither of them. And of course, again, uh, when Christ heals this man by restoring his sight, his critics are all over him, trying to sort of diminish what Christ has done, diminish the testimony of, of, uh, of this individual. And yet Christ kind of says to them, look, the only reason this has happened is that God might be glorified. You know, I love the statement by C.S. Lewis, who say, states that God screams to us through pain. What is God saying to us? God is saying to us, whenever you see affliction, whenever you see pain and suffering, I want you to understand, I'm screaming there to say, this is not the way I intended for things to be. This is not the way it's meant to be. And of course, God provides us a future which is free of all pain and suffering of, of, of tears and so forth. So what we need to understand is whether we are confronted by someone with a birth defect or someone who has been affected by tragedy. And again, Jesus uses this wonderful example of a tragedy where workmen were killed and so forth, and people were suspecting that they were killed because of, of guilt and wrongdoing. Jesus says, it's none of these things. You know, the chances of tragedy affecting you are as great as that that affected the men who were working on, on, on this particular tower. When we see persecution, we might sometimes be tempted to say, well, why are these people persecuted? And Jesus, again, relates a wonderful experience in Luke chapter 13 when he refers to those who were persecuted by Herod, who mixed their blood with offerings and so forth. And so people were asking, well, is it because they were guilty? And Jesus said, absolutely not. So, you know, we need to study the life of Christ. We need to study his ministry of healing to be able to gain a proper perspective of God. And there is so much that we could discuss in relation to the character of God. But ultimately, the point that really stands out for me when it comes to this is that when Jesus repeatedly heals on the Sabbath, in spite of the criticism, in spite of the traditions and laws of the time, and people say to Jesus, why are you healing on the Sabbath? What was Jesus' response to that question, to that charge? My father is working to this very day, and I too am working. Isn't that amazing? You know, when the Creator rested at the end of creation week, we were living in a perfect setting, a perfect environment. But here, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, he says, my father continues to work, and I do likewise. You know, God is not at rest. God will not be at rest 
until he restores his creation to its original state, which was a pain-free state, to a state where there will be no more suffering. And, and to that extent, to that end, we have this wonderful promise in the book of Revelation. Would somebody like to share with us Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4? Lydia, please. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and we will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It it is a beautiful promise. And Brendan, there are some very special words also contained in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Would you share those with us? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, I think some versions say, mine says ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Reminds me, Marek, of another of my very favourite texts in Philippians 1 verse 6. And I'm confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of his return. Right. Wonderful. We, we have a wonderful hope. We have, we have a hope that is based on the resurrection of Christ. We know that we will be resurrected. We know that we will be raised with him and our Mortal bodies will take on immortality, and we know that this will happen at the time of his second return. So the very name Adventist is filled with hope because we are looking forward to that time when Christ will return again. And oftentimes we sing the hymn, we have this hope that burns within our heart, hope in the coming of the Lord. We have this faith that Christ alone imparts. Faith in the promise of his word, we believe the time is here when the nations far and near shall awake and shout and sing, Hallelujah, Christ is King. We have this hope that burns within our heart, hope in the coming of the Lord. I think this is such a beautiful summary of what we have been discussing today. And I hope that if there is someone out there among our listeners afflicted by pain, feeling helpless, hopeless, that you may in prayer, turn to God, and I'm sure God will respond and will reveal himself to you. Feel free to communicate, be it with us, with others, but don't give up because we have a wonderful, loving God, a compassionate God who cares for us. Could we bow our heads for a moment of prayer, please? Dear Heavenly Father, this is such an important topic, the topic of hope. We are surrounded by suffering and pain. Oftentimes we feel discouraged. But God, may we remember that you are always with us, that you hold us by our hand. Please help us to have the awareness of your presence wherever we might find ourselves, wherever we may be, and give us the strength, the hope that we need to have looking forward to your soon return when you will recreate and restore things to their perfect state as you would like it to be as you created it in the beginning. Lord, may this be our hope, our desire, and our longing. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your input today. Indeed, this is um, a big uh, topic. We could go uh, on and on. But we are inviting you, my dear friend, to join us again when we are going to approach 
seeing the invisible. Until then, may God richly bless you and continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus.